Please be seated. So tonight then, John, who is often referred to as the Apostle of Love, has some words to say to us on that very subject. Now, love is something that we fallen little humans think about rather a lot. Uh, You only have to turn the radio on to realize how many of the songs that are being played are love songs or songs about friendship, comradeship, reflecting on love that has or hasn't worked, has or hasn't been requited, and so on. Adam? Um, Love has inspired a variety of quotes and sentiments from the writer Charlotte Bronte, who said, Love is real. The most real, the most lasting, the sweetest, and yet the bitterest thing that we know, to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, on the other hand, which in that concise way that it always does, simply says, love, if possible, is best avoided. Of course, the Bible has much to say to us, too, about the all-importance of love. Over the past few Sunday evenings, we've heard messages from this epistle about seeing ourselves as we really are, being a church that knows who Jesus is, knows what God's truth is, being God's children who walk in light. And it's in the context of all of this that John now commands Christians to love each other. As a sign that we are in that truth, because we are, and because that truth matters above all. Why that love matters, how it works out in practice, and the security that it gives us are three points that we will consider over the next few moments. We're working? Yep. Okay. John then gives us four very clear reasons why this love is important. In verse 14, it shows that we have passed from death to life. As the message translation of this verse puts it, the way we know that we've transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother and sister is a murderer. And you know very well, it concludes, that eternal life and murder don't really go together. Verse 16 It shows we're following the Lord's example. And in verses 17 and 18, as he considers practical outflows, it shows that his love is in us and we've got the truth that's being brought across here. As the message version again puts it, um, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, What happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappears. Slightly sobering translation, we'll look a bit later at what that might mean in practice. This emphasis then, Adam, can you work this for me? Thank you. Um, This emphasis then clearly chimes with the rest of Scripture. We recall uh, Jesus saying in John 13, 35, people will know who we are by our love, We recall Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, without love, I am nothing. Finally, as we mentioned at the beginning, it matters because we are collectively in the truth. 
while we know that God's love is universal, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that the Son was given because God so loved the world and the cross, the resurrection, the gospel is a life belt thrown by God to a lost world drowning in sin. But like any life belt, it can only ultimately and eternally help those who've taken hold of it. Thus, in John 16, 27, the Father loved the disciples because they believe in who the Son is. And in John 14, 21, if we love Jesus, we keep his commands, and thus the Father loves us. See, as Christians, people who come to church, members of the body of Christ, we don't just do this because it's nice, because it's what our family does, because it's a good moral upbringing or focus. We're in this because, as drowning sinners, we've taken hold of the life belt that God's thrown to us and been pulled to safety. And if Christ is a lifeboat, then his bride, the church, is a lifeboat too. And therefore, our love matters because we have a lifeboat to steer together and because the one who saved us from drowning has made us in our turn lifeboat men to rescue others. Lest we forget, people are going to hell without Christ. Some translations of verse 14 about having passed from death to life unashamedly use the word hell. We've been delivered from hell. And indeed we have. And just as the world offers its answers and philosophies, we've just had a general election in which the right and the left argue over their different answers. And after two months of watching them trade insults with each other, finally the day comes when we're asked to endorse one of their different sets of answers. And obviously on an immediate level, it's important stuff to be engaged with and usually at least it produces a majority that somebody can work with. Uh, But in the end, the only eternal answer is Jesus, isn't it? And that's the truth that we all inhabit together. That's the lifeboat that we're all in together. In the uh, Bible Speaks Today commentary on this epistle, David Jackman says this, Love is not simply God's habit, but the essence of who he is. Therefore, we cannot come into real relationship with him without that capacity for love beginning to work in us too, however much we may always struggle to actualize it. So just as truly meeting God cannot fail to change us, so the ability to maintain that love must be found in his strength, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, in our collective worship and our individual devotional lives. So in conclusion then to this first section, as we go on to consider what it looks like in practice, two points to ponder. Are we convinced enough that the gospel is the only ultimate truth and not just one religious or philosophical comfort among many, that we will make it our first love and cherish those who have grasped God's life belt. Secondly, tonight, if you're not a Christian, you might look at yourself and see the wrong in yourself, the wrong in the world, but you may not have grasped hold of God's life belt 
or even yet seen the need to. Can I challenge you that tonight it's not just, hey, we're human, we're not perfect, but it's sin, and the only way out of sin is the life belt that God offers you? As we move on then to consider how this looks in practice, John tells us what to do by telling us who not to be like Cain. John tells us explicitly that Cain did what he did. Cain killed his brother because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. From this, he draws for us two warnings. One, that we should not be like this, and two, that the world may hate us for following Christ and for doing what is right. Firstly and obviously then, through Cain, John invites us to consider perhaps jealousy, disliking people because their lives are better than ours. We can see this culture, can't we, in the world around us, the looking for skeletons in people's cupboards, whether they're actually there or not. So let's ask ourselves prayerfully for a moment. Can we be jealous of another person's consecration? The way they're used, their humility, people skills, calling, ministry, relationships, blessing. If someone falls from grace, are we glad because they seem to be better than us? Or do we seek to restore them out of love for what they can be again in God? And as we think about this and as we begin to think about John's warning that the world can hate us, we need to be a bit careful here about martyr complexes and stuff. Sometimes if people have a grudge against us, it's our fault because we've done something wrong and we need to get it right. And sometimes just, you know, Not everybody likes everybody. That's life. So what does John mean by the world might hate us? When I get up and go to work in the morning, I might be thinking various things about how wonderful it really isn't that it's time to get up already, wondering what a day in a prison is going to hold for me today. But I'm not usually thinking how am I going to cope with everybody's hatred today? Because, you know, that's not usually how life is. I trust this is true for you too. There is some Prozac in the vestry if anyone needs it. But is it true that the world can hate God's truth? It's claimed to be the only truth. It's moral standards. Yes, of course it is. And that in us can be hated either because the world sees it as outmoded or because people are jealous of it. We live in a fallen world that sees any claim to truth as being wrong because we're in an age that's morally relativistic and sometimes tragically as well because twisted claims to absolutes have caused things like the tragic atrocities we've witnessed over the last few weeks. So again... John tells us in his gospel that men hate the light because their deeds are evil. Even the best of us are sinners and we don't like being told it. 
In his song, The Property of Jesus, Bob Dylan, a singer-songwriter who for a period of time at least had a real born-again experience with God, he tells of Jesus Christ being in his room with him, inspiring him, saving him. Bob Dylan is a born-again man who needs to rediscover truth. But in his song, Property of Jesus, he says this, and he's talking about people looking at a Christian they know. Go ahead and talk about him, because he makes you doubt. Because he's denied himself the things that you can't live without. Stop your conversation when he passes on the street. Hope he falls upon himself. Won't that be sweet? When the whip that's keeping you in line doesn't make him jump, you say he's hard of hearing, you say that he's a chump. Say he's out of step with reality as you try to test his nerve because he doesn't pay no tribute to the king that you serve. You say that he's a loser and he's got no common sense because he doesn't increase his worth at someone else's expense. He's the property of Jesus and you resent him to the bone because you've got something better. You've got your heart of stone. The songwriter argues here that this can be true of how the world sees God's people. And John wants to warn us too, lest it ever be true of how we see each other. The love that John commands us then is manifested in a lack of jealousy, resentment and a bearing with each other and also a sense of each other's worth in Christ. In the Screwtape Letters, a very funny and very wise book in which C.S. Lewis imagines one devil writing to another about how to wreck a young Christian's faith. Lewis writes that one, one way that the devil might try and do this is that humans must be made to see the church of Jesus Christ not as a terrible army with banners that makes demons tremble, the flag of Jesus Christ flying high and proud in every place of worship, but as a shabby, sham, gothic building in a housing estate. And that, and I quote, when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him a shabby little book containing a liturgy that neither of them understands and some really bad hymns in very small print. And when he gets to his pew and he looks around him, He sees the neighbours who he's been trying to avoid all week because he doesn't really like them. Make his mind flipped, this devil says to his pupil, between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces that he sees in the pew. And with that, Screwtape counsels the younger devil to make the human that they are tempting focus on the church's faults and people's faults above all. What the demon is trying to achieve is that lost in petty irritations, we lose sight of what the church, the expression of Christ's body that we have been rescued into is. Christ redeemed the victory of his cross, the preacher and custodian of his truth. And while institutions and people are not perfect, and nor should the church, and nor should you, and nor should I, ever be above calling out or questioning when things genuinely need addressing. 
Can we be sometimes guilty of regarding faults above worth? Will we see the church as screw tape was so desperate for us not to, as God's redeemed and glorious army with an army's sense of kinship and purpose? And it's seeing people in this light that perhaps helps us in the practical charity that John asks us to consider here. Life throws us hard choices, doesn't it, about practical benevolence. When a homeless person, and it's worrying that there seem to be ever more of them in Norwich, actually, um, asks us for money, what's best to do? Give money in trust that it won't be spent on something bad like drugs or drink. Do nothing, walk on by, or offer food instead. Those choices are with us all the time, aren't they? John speaks about material need and practical benevolence to each other, meeting needs where we see it. And the examples of how that might play out are too numerous to try and list here. But life will present them to us, and God will challenge our hearts. And meeting needs can also be spiritual, can't it? in taking time to encourage, pray for, counsel, listen. And while we know that sometimes there are practical boundaries, people need protecting, Jesus took himself away for times of refreshing, which tells us, I think, that we're useless to God and to others if we let ourselves burn out. There are blessings that go with all that John is calling us to here. And as we go on to consider um, the security that this love offers us, the upshot of all that John offers us here is the blessing of a clear conscience. In the uh, political satire program on the BBC, Yes Minister, um, some of you may remember this, there's a cabinet minister who's the gentleman seated, Jim Hacker, who's always trying to change things. Standing above him is Humphrey Appleby, a senior civil servant who wants things kept as they are for the sake of the status quo. And caught in between their crossfire is Bernard Woolley, a parliamentary private secretary. So Bernard and Sir Humphrey are discussing the minutes of a cabinet meeting that's yet to be written, and they need to reflect something in this instance that didn't actually go on. And people quibble with minutes that have been written. I don't know if anyone takes minutes. It's something I have to do at work from time to time, and, and uh, people are always very vehement in um, what they did and didn't say. And so Bernard asked, do you want me to falsify these minutes? And Sir Humphrey, trying to say it without actually saying it, said, I want nothing of the sort, it's up to you. What do you want? Faced with this past buck, Bernard says, I want to have a clear conscience. That is what I want. To which his mentor replies, Oh, you want a clear conscience? And since when did you acquire this taste for luxury? What it reflects is a slightly cynical vision of a political world in which a clear conscience is unattainable. There's a story that's told, isn't there, about the writer Robert Louis Stevenson, who left a note as a joke for his friends that simply said, flee at once, everything is discovered. That very night, several of his friends fled the country. What had that prank revealed? If it was done or you or I, what would it reveal? 
Yet we do have a clear conscience, which is a gift from God and is maintained by our obedience and love. Because even as John has warned us that love is a necessary outflow of faith, in verses 19 and 20, he also gives us the counterbalance, a reassurance that we're not to judge ourselves too harshly, not to be always beating ourselves up for feeling that we've not done enough. As long as we know, and John means really know, that we've done our best, not just convincing ourselves that we have when we haven't, then John assures us that we're safe from accusation. Perhaps partly because we humans are worry warts at heart, and partly because he knows the devil can accuse us. As the message version again puts it, my dear children, let's not just talk about love, let's practice real love. This is the only way we will know that we are living truly, living in God's reality. That's the caveat, that's the condition, that's what we've got to be doing. This version goes on to say, it's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there may be something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. So John tells us, don't worry, don't be paranoid about not being loving enough. Just do your best to do it through your relationship with Jesus. Easier said than done at times, yes, but through it, we will let God reassure us that our hearts are right. And alongside the blessing of a clear conscience, the reward that he promises here is a boldness to stand before God and an assurance that God will answer our prayers because they are asked from a right conscience. They will not be, as James warns us in his letter, prayers asked amiss that they may be spent on our lusts, but on what is right. This isn't obedient acts, buying favour from God. As someone said to me once, God is not a Coke machine where you put in a coin and get out what you want. But simply, it's God's spirit reassuring and partnering with us and showing us how to pray and minister that we sh- as we should. And believing in the Son and serving go hand in hand here because we can only sustain it in his strength and from a conviction that the glory of his name and his image in people matters above all. As Hebrews promises us, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works that we may serve the living God? So, upshot then, if our prayer life starts to look a bit like this, we've probably kind of missed everything that John is driving at here, and we may safely not be praying from a right conscience. But assuming, hopefully, that we're not praying like this, that we know that we've done our best for people, and that God, by his Spirit, is reassuring us, we know that answers are frustratingly never immediate, rarely in our time frame, but ultimately God's will shall be fulfilled. The security of obedience to truth is that we are with him and he is with us. And the final promise that John gives us 
is that the Spirit of God witnesses this to us. Don't just take this from me, he says, even though I'm your concerned pastor. Take it from the Holy Spirit who ministers to us. And we all have our individual spheres about in which John will challenge us about everything he said tonight. But in conclusion then, the God-given ability to walk in love. Necessary because we're the redeemed. Necessary because we're the guardians and the proclaimers of his truth. The church that stands against spiritual darkness and falsity in a world that has lost its moorings. Helps us and frees us to relate to each other as God wants us to and gives us the security of being in his strength and his will. And as the redeemed of God, let's show God's love because we're collectively saved from sin, all of us, and drawn into the only certain hope and truth. We're redeemed together by the only true saviour. And you know what? We're stuck with each other for eternity. When Paul talks about the three things, the three greatest things, faith, hope, and love, why is love the greatest of these? Because one day we're going to be in eternity. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ in the glory of his presence, finally home, finally safe forever. Faith and hope won't be needed anymore. They'll have been superseded by that glorious reality to come. But love, love will be there forever. So let's turn to the God who loves us in prayer. Thank you.